Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week will be a conversation between Chad, Trevor, and Tom. We will discuss John Chrysostom's homilies, uh, at least a couple of them, which deal with almsgiving, a major theme throughout the work of Chrysostom. We begin with a short um, discussion of a recent current event in Istanbul uh, where the... um, the Hagia Sophia is now being used as a mosque again. Um, so for some time, uh, it had been just declared a museum since it's originally a Christian basilica. Um, and after the advent of Islam, it became a uh, mosque. And now again, it's going to be used as a mosque. Um, and this has caused some consternation in the Middle East. So we discussed that. Um, and then we go headlong into John Chrysostom's uh, view of almsgiving and its importance in the Christian life, and even a short discussion of Hebrews 6, um, and what does it mean to fall away for other Christians as well as for um, John Chrysostom and and some of his interesting thoughts on that difficult passage of Scripture. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter and Facebook, um, and we'll be having more giveaways as we've been doing. Um, And we also have a conversation coming up with Samantha Miller, who will give us some further insight into the writings and theology of John uh, Chrysostom. So thank you very much for listening. Please rate us, review us on iTunes, um, and uh, let us know what you think. And we um, we will appreciate hearing from you. Thanks for listening. Let's see. Um, oh, actually, well, so uh, as sort of a general conversation point, uh, even before we dive into John Chrysostom, we have so we we've been doing a kind of uh, some one off episodes where we look at like we've looked at uh, uh, Ambrose and we looked at what he wrote on um, the duties of the clergy. Then we looked at Nyssa on slavery. Uh Perpetuate Felicitas on martyrdom, and now we're going to do sort of a one-off. Well, it may not be one-off. We'll see where it goes, but we're going to look at just a couple of homilies from John Chrysostom on almsgiving and poverty, and uh, which are some major themes in his work. But we haven't talked about Chrysostom that much very broadly, and it also interestingly coincided with some news uh, that's not gotten all that much press in the United States, uh, but I've noticed it on my sort of theology Twitter. But that is that the Hagia Sophia, uh, so the um, what, what was once a Christian basilica in Ist- what is modern-day Istanbul, ancient Constantinople, um, has gone from being a museum to now being a mosque um, again. So after the conquest uh, of the uh, of Constantinople in the 15th century, uh, the Hagia Sophia was turned into a mosque. Uh, this is what happened often in the larger churches that were taken over during various uh, uh, Islamic conquests of lands that were formerly Christian. Um, and so what has happened now is that uh, I guess it's come straight from Erdogan that that they want to make it a, a, a mosque again. Um, so at that church at the Hagia Sophia uh, that there would be worship in the Greek Orthodox Byzantine fashion and often the uh, liturgy that they used is attributed to John Chrysostom um, so that's who we're talking about today I don't know if he would have presided at Hagia Sophia specifically uh, but he was also a priest at Constantinople um, so he lived there uh, but his liturgy is that significant in still in Greek Orthodox churches so anyway just another sort of interesting sort of piece of history like I said that's not getting that much press uh, but we have a kind of like reinstantiation of 
the sort of dominance of Islam in a formerly Christian country where, you know, no one is speaking out against this pretty uh, significant act. Oh, wow. So I, I don't really know if you guys have much to say in response, but I thought it was worth bringing up. I mean, that's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. Is that official? I was just trying to read up on it because I hadn't heard anything about it. And now, well, all I came across was that Erdogan or whatever, however you say his name, uh, that the president of Turkey wanted to wanted to make it an official mosque again. But I, I, I didn't have time to actually read articles. But has it actually been official? Uh, well, I thought it had been, but if I have I not said that uh, to cover, yeah. So I mean, yeah, it has. There is a there is a mosque there. They're covering. I mean, that's what Al Jazeera said. Um, so I I don't know. I presume that it was. Maybe I've overstated the case, but at the very least, it's being debated again uh, yeah. without much um, without much fanfare in the West. Yeah, and as far as what you said about Christostom. Uh, preaching there. He might have been able to preach there in an early form of it, but he wasn't there when it, in its completed form under Justinian. So there is an earlier yeah. version of the church, I guess. I don't know. Did they call it Hagia Sophia in the earlier versions? I um, don't know the answer. I don't know. But there would have been something there. I've, it's actually, so does, I wonder if that would mean that I wouldn't, or tourists wouldn't be able to go and tour the building because that's always been a goal of mine is to go and actually tour the Hagia Sophia. It looks like from Al Jazeera that they would just use it for um, worship and then they would allow some visitors. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're trying to – like it's just sort of like inch, inching towards a recovery uh, from the Islamic perspective, um, a recovery of using it as a mosque. Yeah. Huh. But anyway hmm. – um, so Chrysostom, though, uh, is who we're talking about. He was a priest uh, from Antioch, from Syria. Uh, he wrote primarily in Greek, although um, I've been wanting to do a series. Uh, I may talk to you guys about this, but I've been wanting to do a series of kind of talks, maybe through the podcast, about uh, the history of Christianity in uh, sort of the Middle East um, and what's often called Syriac Christianity. Um, I have recorded a podcast with my professor, one of my professors, uh, Jeff Wicks, and we talk a little bit about what's called Syriac Christianity. That is Christianity that was done in this um, this language formed in Syria. Although Chrysostom might have known Syriac, uh, he spoke in Greek primarily, uh, trained under the famous pagan orator called Libanius. So he had one of the greatest educations in the sort of eastern half of the Roman Empire. Um, and his father was a military officer um, and who died when he was relatively young. And he was a very famous uh, Chrysostom means golden mouth. Um, that was where he, you know, that's where his like uh, moniker comes from. So he's John the golden mouth uh, priest. He spent some time uh, in both Antioch and Constantinople. And basically, he's known for uh, his homilies. So some of which we've read for today from Matthew and Hebrews. And he, he writes to her. So he dies in the early part of the fifth century. Um, and uh, so most of his life is the latter half of the fourth, early fifth century. He's often kind of associated with and 
what's called Antiochene Christianity, that is, uh, with like reading the scriptures um, a little bit more at their historical level than than on a more allegorical level. Um, although he could at some time at some points he actually looks a little bit more like Alexandrian. Actually, he was accused of being an Alexandrian um, at one point. So he's sort of an interesting uh, figure who somewhat transcends these boundaries between uh, what's like I say generally called Antiochene and Alexandrian Christianity. Um, although, if you want to, to know more about that, um, I'm working on an article that explains why this is in sort of an unhelpful uh, dichotomy. But so that's oh. Chrysostom. All right, cool. I didn't know a lot of that. So that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, just to, you know, remind, I mean, I, I think one thing just thinking about, you know, listeners and about what we've been talking about in general, and I can't say how long we've been doing this, Chad, maybe you have a better sense, but the theologians we've been covering for a while, have all been fairly contemporary of each other or contemporaneous with each other uh, and all writing at the end, second half of the fourth century, pretty much. So, I mean, I'm thinking Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome, Christostom, all of it happening during, I I think in a general sense, that period in the empire when uh, there was still a question about whether or not Rome would ultimately be Christian or pagan um, in the wake of Constantine's death and and his successors, both his sons uh, and his nephew, who tried to bring the empire back to being pagan. And then afterwards, the, you know, kind of the the establishment of new uh, uh, royal houses, uh, new dynasties and and choosing Christian dynasties rather than pagan dynasties. So I mean I think even Arian Christian as well. So the, yes, those that exactly. thought that Christ yes. was created rather than part of the Godhead. Yes, which also the whole empire was wrestling with. So it wasn't just wrestling with whether or not to be pagan or Christian. It was wrestling with whether or not to be if Christian, what kind of Christian? Are they going to be Catholic Orthodox Christian or are they going to be Arian Christian? Which um, and I, if you guys recall a few episodes back. Ambrose, I, I really think he kind of embodied that when he was appointed to his position um, because he was chosen as a compromise candidate in Milan. The the person who was uh, proposed to be bishop, or there were two men who were being proposed to be bishop. One was an Orthodox Catholic, one was a an Arian, and the city was absolutely divided and on the verge of hostilities. And then Ambrose was chosen as a kind of a an in-between candidate so it's a it's a pretty i think transformative period in church history and all the people that we've mentioned are people who are generally thought of as very transformative in the big picture of the life of the church i mean um i mean i i don't think it would be overstating it to say that you might to say you might think of them as perhaps the most important figures uh in church history for the next 1200 years or something along those lines or no not the next 1200 up until like 11 or 1200 i'm thinking aquinas is i mean you have a lot of really important medieval theologians but i always think of aquinas as the next guy who is on par with these guys in terms of their overall influence and importance Mm. obviously they're great and important ones gregory the great anselm you know so i I don't want to you know overstate what i just said but yeah, that makes sense. 
So we read um, some homilies from Matthew and from Hebrews. Um, I chose them because they said a few different things that uh, like sort of described how or that showed how um, Chrysostom preached against uh, or preached in favor of almsgiving, that is giving to the poor, um, and his sort of general emphasis on the church as a caregiver for those who are in need. And it's one of these striking things um, that's prominent within the preaching of Augustine, but as well of Chrysostom and Gregory Nyssa, Gre Gregory Nazianzen, and uh, Basil Caesarea, for most of these very influential preachers, and maybe none as much as Chrysostom. So at one point, Chrysostom says that almsgiving is the queen of the virtues. Um, and so like he puts almsgiving and that is giving to the poor as like one of the chief things that Christians should do in their lives. Like if you're not doing that, you're not really practicing virtue. So for Chrysostom, Chrysostom, they're, they're pronounced both those ways. Uh, my friend who did her dissertation on Chrys Chrysostom, that's how she said it. So I started saying it. I think it follows the Greek a little bit more, but whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, he uh, Anyway, so he's just is very um, – like he just preaches about this all the time. Um, and he talks about it for several different reasons, why it's so important. And one of them comes up in his homily on Hebrews. So that's why I chose it. But uh, it just um, Tom Holland wrote this book that I've referenced before called Dominion. And, he, and one of the things that he states was, as he was going back and thinking about his quote unquote liberal Western values, he kept coming back to how they are rooted in Christianity. And one of the things that he mentions is how in the fourth century, uh, when Christianity has begins to have this emergence as powerful in the Roman empire, for whatever reason, they take their time at the top and start saying, give all your money to the poor. All the famous preachers from this era talk about how we need to care for the poor. Um, and, th and that's just a striking thing, right? So Christianity has been dominated uh, by all uh, uh, by, by the powerful, by the Roman Empire, by the pagans for 300 years of its existence. And when when that Christianity becomes legal, the first thing that Christian preachers start to do is to say, hey, look, now we have a lot more power. Give up as much money as you can and start helping the poor because as Chrysostom will say, quoting Matthew 25, that is where Christ is on earth, right? So um, – and, and I mean it's just – it is just kind of a striking thing. That is so noteworthy and so uh, ubiquitous in, in this period. Yeah, yeah, I uh... – I actually think it's funny, you know, looking at what he wrote on almsgiving and on giving. There's one section in particular that I highlighted that looking at it, it made me think of the way a lot of people will speak of wealth today. Uh, and here I'm, I'm kind of highlighting some, it, it, you know, some of those people I follow on Twitter who tend to be more uh, at least anti-capitalist, if not more outright Marxist. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen some of the, the big capitalists of our day vilified, right, whether it be Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or, you know, somebody along those lines. And, and it, it actually made me think about I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day. I think it was Joe Rogan podcast. He was, he was interviewing somebody. I don't recall who, but uh, somebody talked about Bezos. And I think it was Rogan said, what did, Bezos, what did he do wrong? And then they were like, we don't know. 
And he goes, must be just because he has money. You know, like there is this conversation going on, I think, uh, in the world where there is a general distrust of people who have money, especially people who have loads of money. Um, I do think there's a little hypocrisy in it because it seems to me that many of these people who really, um, I don't know, are anti you know, I don't know, are really kind of against the Jeff Bezos of the world. It seems to me that many of them are actually quite rich themselves. They're just not as rich as Jeff Bezos, which, I mean, nobody is. Right. Uh, but anyway, it just made me think of that when I'm reading Chris Austin here, because he, he made a couple of quotes. So this is uh, page 706 for you guys, um, the last paragraph, uh, about halfway through. It says, for if both the wealthy and those next to them were to distribute amongst themselves those who are in need of bread and raiment, scarcely would one poor person would one poor person fall to the share of fifty men or even a hundred. Um, uh, you know, so basically, what I gathered from this text, I, I thought that that went a little said a little more. I might have not highlighted as much as I wanted to. Um, oh no, actually, I'll go a little further further up. The beginning of that paragraph. Yeah. Let us distribute then amongst the poor the whole multitude of the city, and you will see the disgrace, how great it is. For the very rich indeed are but few, but those that come next to them are many. So here he's talking about the upper middle class. Again, the poor are much fewer than these. Nevertheless, though there are so many that are able to feed the hungry, many go to sleep in their hunger, not because those that have are not able with ease to help them, but because of their great barbarity and inhumanity. So if I'm translating this, it's basically it seems like what he's doing is he's saying, oh my gosh, if the really, really rich people in our city and the upper middle class people pooled their money, they would be able to take care of all the poor. He basically says there are very few rich and very few poor. Most people are middle class. But if the upper middle class and the rich were able to take all their money, they would be able to provide all that is needed for all the poor. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this same exact point made on Twitter, right? I mean, uh, it was actually kind of a, a, a funny little mishap that was that happened on uh, – this was on an interview. I can't remember where it was. I should have looked it up. This was about a few months ago where somebody seeing Jeff Bezos's um, wealth, it was, you know, something like uh, 360 – no, no, that doesn't make any sense. I can't remember the number. I'd have to look that up. But somebody misspoke and basically said that some rich person could give everybody a million dollars. It was like this. It wasn't Bezos. It was some somebody who had like three hundred and sixty million dollars or something like that. They said you could give every American a million dollars. You know, it was kind of a, a miscount. I'll have to look that up. But um, it just we're constantly talking about how if the wealthy would just take a good chunk of their money and combine and give it to the poor there would be no poverty in america that kind of line of reasoning yeah well what's what is interesting about this passage is they have enough to he says sucker them and which is a bit more i think than merely like obviously just giving money in our modern sense right it's probably like providing everything they would need to to live in general, like, you know, um, but, but also it's, I mean, this is sort of an ideological, uh, tension within being specifically an American Christian because we, um, 
you know, we believe in property rights and um, we're sort of brought up with this ideology of not violating people's property rights. Uh, that being one of things that's a, of, you know, great importance um, because it, it gives you so many of your other rights that are enumerated in the first 10 amendments. But it's, it's strange because um, we, but at the same time being, being Christians, there's a way in which our like own private morality existing in this sort of di diverse in terms of ideology, a diverse society our own like private ideology sort of does demand us that we don't think of our property as our own, that we think of everything as God's and that it is to be distributed in that way. Cause really you're just sort of sharing God's stuff with the rest of the world. And I don't know, I think about that sometimes it, it, it is a weird tension because um, I, I don't want a government that thinks it can violate <laughs> my property rights. But then privately, I do want to live as if things aren't necessarily my own. I don't know. Does anyone understand what I'm saying here? I felt a little rambly there at the end. Well, I think it's a, I mean, from my perspective, it's an interesting and helpful point. Um, I do believe that we sort of separate out sort of how we, operate in the kind of public American square versus our sort of own private uh, beliefs, if you will. And I ultimately think that it's problematic to differentiate like that, but but we do sort of in practice end up there. And one of the same things that we could say about Chris, Chris Ostom here um, and his views uh, of wealth and the ability to sucker uh, or um, sort of provide for all the poor, it's actually a similar comment that I think I would make or that I did make or that we did talk about with Gregory Nyssa, which was, you know, he does outright condemn slavery um, and, but, but you, he still doesn't, um, he still doesn't ask the government to, to outlaw the practice, or he doesn't have like an overall view of, okay, if we outlaw this practice, what next for the way in which sort of farms operate or something, for instance, like we as moderns think in terms of systems, we think in terms of government, we think in terms of corporations and law and like you know, not that they didn't have law or government, but law and government were so restricted um, into what they could do and what they could actually sort of control um, mm. that it would be almost inconceivable for um, even for Chris Ostom here to think about our notions of private property exchange. Um, and even our wealth. So like on the one hand, on the one hand, yes, Bezos has enough money to make sure that everyone, you know, has like one night in a hotel and one meal um, <laughs> or something for all the people that don't have wealth. Surely he could provide that for one day. But what we sort of think about now is, OK, that might be true. He might be able to pay for everybody to have food for a day. Um, but ultimately, that's not going to solve the problem. Right. Um, and in a sense, I don't know that Chris Awesome's trying to, quote unquote, solve the system solve the problem, solve the the sort of those bigger questions. Um, in some respects, it's just because uh, like pretty much they thought trade is minimal. Uh, most of us live and work on farms. 
um, and most of us or phishing or some other kinds. Like trade is is minimal, exchange is minimal, usury is basically illegal. So it's really difficult to build big giant enterprises and industries. Um, so you know, giving to the poor, well, you know, it's it's much easier in a sense when you if you think about. Um, it's pretty minimal your options. Um, whereas now no one, you know, whatever it is, 95% or 96% of Americans don't live on a farm. We can't make food for ourselves. We can't gather food for ourselves. We have to, we are dependent on exchange and we are dependent on the idea of private property. And I don't think that Chrysostom could have imagined that. Um, yeah. and so like, yeah, no, I didn't want to cut you off. I'm sorry. I thought you paused and but that's, I mean, so it's just, it's a little hard to like to think about, okay, I agree with Chris Awesome that we should care for the poor. I believe that we shouldn't chastise them just because they're poor uh, and we shouldn't look on down on them just because they're poor. But I also think, but it doesn't necessarily solve our issue if like I gave up all my wealth today to feed people in the St. Louis area and then we were all poor tomorrow. Yeah, I think so. I mean, both of you guys brought up points I wanted to address. First to Trevor's just because you said it first. What you said about that that realization that everything we has is have is God's and not our own, uh, mm-hmm. great point. And I do think uh, that hails or harkens back to what Nissa said in our reading a couple of weeks ago. Because right, um, yeah. I do believe that's kind of the way he tended to address. Because Nissa, I think, addresses a lot of these same issues, maybe not in the context of almsgiving per se, more in the context of poverty, you know, of like, basically choosing the impoverished life, I think. Um, uh, and then, Chad, your point is exactly been my thoughts on it for the longest time. Like, it's, it's, it, it, it's that when people come up with solutions to these issues, the solutions always seem to me like non-solutions. And, you know, I work, I've worked at a church. I'm an elder at a church. So that's one of the places where I've seen this kind of rubber hits the road type of thing, you know, you, you have people, and I don't know how many people are aware of this, but, you know, when I worked at the church, I did a, I, one of the roles I had was what we called the pastor on call, which is if somebody comes in and wants to talk to a pastor, uh, you know, they, they come to us and, uh, you know, we would have every day countless people who were, I mean, I don't know what their, all their states are, whether it be their need of help to cover the rent, their need of help uh, to cover groceries, they're in need of help uh, to get to a new place, they're homeless. I mean, you name it. I mean, we could have easily, I mean, you could have upwards of 10 or 15 people in a day who would come looking for help. And I, you know, I was able to spend enough time in that context to see people kind of coming back if they could. And, and my experience was, is that people will come to the degree to which you have resources available to them. Um, I also was, uh, had the, I think, maybe unique experience of one time, I don't know, just I encountered a homeless guy who was walking around. We struck up a conversation and I ended up spending the day with him and uh, I was able to to see his routine. Now, I'm not saying this is like universal, that all homeless people have this routine, but, you know, he told me it was a common one and it certainly was his. And it's something that bore out in his life because I, I, of course, encountered him many times after this day. But what we did, I just walked with him as his companion. I didn't say anything. I just watched. But we would actually go from church to church to church to church. Uh, And he would put in requests that from these various churches for different financial benefits. 
And in his case, he, of course, would make up different stories for each visit, depending on what he thought that they needed, like what they would be inclined to give on. So for some, I remember one of the churches, he told them he was looking to go, uh, you know, he wanted to get a, a mon enough money for a ticket uh, for a bus. Another one, it was like a hotel room, you know, just whatever he felt people would give. And I remember we went to a local Methodist church and, uh, or no, we went to the local Catholic church and the Catholic church gave him 25 bucks. And when we left, he said, he says, these Catholic bastards are so stingy. He goes, let's go to the Methodists. They'll give me at least 50 bucks. So we went to the Methodist church and sure enough, they gave him 50 bucks. And that just always struck me. And I'm not saying this like I, I really want to be careful because I really don't want to say that this is what everybody who's impoverished goes through. I just know I've worked a lot with people who are impoverished. And the one thing that always comes to my mind when I'm working with them is I'm always thinking, what is the long term solution? What is the thing that will help them in the big picture? Um you know, and, and maybe the only answer is, and I'm, I'm willing to accept this, is that is that people who are um, liberal, meaning like liberal with their resources, just give whenever they can. And in those instances, maybe that's just the way many of our impoverished are, in fact, going to get by in life. I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, it seems like the big picture is rarely dealt with in our like short term answers. And I certainly don't want to criticize uh, Chrysostom on this subject because I'm sure that, you know, he's he's he no doubt was working with many of the impoverished. So I'm not trying to say he's like totally wrong or anything of that particular nature. But it, it did strike me just how frequently I feel like people like will come up with what appear to be answers and they just don't really strike me as real answers before I hand over the mic. I did want to um, make an addendum to what I said a moment ago. I felt bad that I tried to share an anecdote that I hadn't looked at or uh, looked up in a while. So I pulled it up while, while we were on, while I was on pause and uh, found the quote I was referencing. I don't know if you guys recall, but this was uh, some time ago. I can't, uh, for some reason, the, the webpage isn't giving me the date. Oh, March 6th. Uh, uh, NBC's anchor, Brian Williams, uh, oh, yeah. discussion with a New York Times editor, Mara Gay. And basically, so she said that Michael Bloomberg, I just said, yeah, so I just referred to my, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. It was Michael Bloomberg, and she was referencing his uh, run for the presidency, that he had spent $500 million on ads. And then she said the U.S. population is $327 million. He could have given each American a million dollars and still had money left over. I feel like a million dollar check would be life changing for most people. Yet he wasted it all on ads and still lost. Now, I don't want to. I mean, I, I'm not going to overplay the fact that she didn't think <laughs> that through. Um, like it's a moment she's on air. She made a comment. I've said things like that a million times, I'm sure. Um, so the math obviously is very bad. She just didn't think about it because obviously, uh, $500 million cannot be divided, uh, by a million, uh, to each to the 330 million Americans. That's not the way the math would work. Um, but I just wanted to bring it out because it was really, it was just one more example of this constant ref, like this thing that I hear so much 
about how these ultra wealthy people could do so much for humanity if they gave so much of their money. Now, the reality is most of the ultra wealthy people I'm aware of are public philanthropists and they do give enormous amounts of money. You know, like, I mean, you talk about Bill Gates, the guy is a reputed philanthropist who's given more money. I mean, I actually saw him in a, when he was, when Elizabeth Warren was talking about, you know, kind of her proposals for, um, you know, bringing about universal health care and some other things, she put forward a proposal to really tighten the tax on the upper 1%. And Bill Gates responded, and I, I only mention this because of what he said. He said, Bill Gates said that I, he says, I have given more money to causes than anyone in history. And I, I don't know if he checked that to make sure, but that does seem like it's probably true, you know? So it, yeah. it's like, you know, anyway, so just some thoughts. Sorry, sorry to ramble for so long. Well, and just to, just to give like uh, a brief, com if we're commenting on things stated about public people, just to briefly comment, like Jeff Bezos does get brought up in part because for how rich he is, he also famously gives some of the least amount. Whereas, of course, like Bill Gates is like the exact opposite. And just to add to that, the Gates Foundation has actually, there's like reports on this, like from, you know, actual research institutions. Um, they've definitely reduced the um, child mortality rate in some countries. Like, I mean, they it's directly linked to the things they've done, at least. So Wait, who has? The Gates Foundation. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and so and and uh, and to and also kind of to my point earlier, I don't really know about American specifically American poverty. American poverty is an interesting one because there's a lot of studies that show the vast majority of those who are homeless in America um, uh, are potentially dealing with undiagnosed mental health issues, which is which is a whole nother can of worms. But I but I do think. At, at like the global scale and that's kind of where i give most of my own money um to in terms of charities is at the global scale though there is definitely something to be said that there are there are folks for whom this christostom homily um a, sort of does apply for us in a, a country as rich as america there there are whole other parts of the world that we you know we have the ability to help them and it's i mean i don't want to like i don't want to i don't believe like peter singer's arguments are always that great but it's actually one of the greater things peter singer ever did was kind of waking people up to how much we can affect through like very little money um and so there's a way in which it's not even a lot and that's kind of where i felt that when i read this part of the homily i felt this like yeah if we just literally gave five bucks a month, which all of us can blow on, you know, a, a subscription or whatever. Um, there's like just malaria we can prevent by literally just buying people mosquito nets. Like it's like, there's that level of poverty in the world that, that is easily alleviate or alleviated. Um, that, that mostly I do feel this message. Um, I don't know, or at least it hit me hard for that message. Like I, I felt it, apply that's how that's what i'm trying to say i was not trying to argue that money shouldn't be given i'm not like trying to create some kind of a theology uh, <laughs> in which in which the in which wealth isn't given i, I think that's 
super important. And I do think there are good ways in which it can be done for sure. I just think that oftentimes when we have the discussion, we very vaguely and um, in a in like in a and very impractically say, let us give money to the situation, not recognizing that the simple fact of money in situations doesn't necessarily mean anything. I do think right. there are people who are incredibly, I think it's actually a real gift for people to be able to discern like what are the best ways to help uh, people in poverty in terms of with, with resources. And I think there are a lot of people out there who do it really well. And I think that there's a lot of, of charities and ministries and organizations and individuals who have given in ways that have profoundly impacted um, impoverished communities. So I don't want to try to make that sound like I'm making an excuse for why the wealthy never need to give at all. Like that wasn't my overall point. It was just in general that as long as we speak abstractly and without a real world sensitivity or sensibility, we need to understand that, that just the fact of giving money doesn't necessarily resolve issues. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. certainly not the money that makes the, the, well, I mean, it is the money, but only indirectly that makes the most impact um, across the globe. Cause of course the Gates foundation, of course he gives a lot of money, but it's what he's doing with it. Right. I mean, it's a fact that he's creating whole systems of support and education in communities. And so that's, Anyway, that was me agreeing with you. Um, well, I, I was going to go back to Chris's thumb here a little bit um, and talk <laughs> about something. So part of the – one of the things that I found most interesting about the homily from uh, Hebrews – so this is homily 9 um, on Hebrews 6. The reason I chose that one – so Hebrews 6 um, for uh, – I'm is is an interesting uh, book um, and it's an interesting chapter because it's one of those that I can actually vividly remember in high school um, wanting to know what especially verses four through eight mean. So I'll read real quick um, verse, Hebrews 6, 4. He says, uh, Paul, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, um, I think Chrysostom thought it was Paul, but be that as it may, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance to their loss. They are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjugating him to public disgrace. All right. So why do I bring that up? Well, Chrysostom mentions this in this homily and it's interesting in the fourth century, there's some debates um, amongst historians about when exactly the church changes its understanding about what kind of sin is permissible after baptism or even really possible for a true Christian. So it seems that maybe early on in the fourth century and late third century, um, that is in the 200s, 300, and then the early 300s, that a lot of Christians seem to believe and operate under the idea that once you were baptized, you couldn't really sin again. Um, And so that would kind of be how you could even read Hebrews 6. But what uh, Chrysostom does in this homily is basically say there is a way uh, to be um, re- sort of returned and restored in your relationship with God after you've sinned, after baptism. So he makes a thorough point that there is only one baptism. That's for him. That's the t- the sharing in the Holy Spirit, the tasting of the heavenly gift. That's sort of baptism for him. Um, and he says, once you're baptized, don't ever be baptized again. That's fine. Um, but he says, if you want to get back sort of into um, uh, like um, if you want to get 
you know, good with God, sort of. Uh, basically, you should do a lot of things. Um, but on uh, so in on page four twelve and part eight, he says, um, and after prayer, there is need for much almsgiving. For this it is which especially gives strength to the medicine of repentance. And as there is medicine among the physicians' herbs, which receives. Uh, many herbs, or which uh, uh, among the physician physicians helps, which receives many herbs, but one is the essential. So also in the case of repentance, this is the essential herb. Yea, it may be everything. For hear what the divine scripture says: Give alms, and all things shall be clean. And then he goes on to quote a few more. Uh, but he basically highlights and uh, um focuses on almsgiving as a way to cleanse yourself in repentance. Um, and I, this is going to make Protestants uncomfortable um, because it's kind of like what we would call penance probably um, in the uh, in like in sort of more Catholic terminology, Roman Catholic terminology. But for Chrysostom, this is it. Like once you've sinned after baptism, you need to pray and you need to do a few other things, but you really just need to go give money to people. So, and there's some other things that I would like us to talk about um, how uh, Chrysostom sort of theologically imagines what happens when one gives alms. But I'll start with that. Pretty unique, a pretty interesting way to solve this problem. Hey, uh, you know, if you think you're falling away, if you give alms, you're sort of restored. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that you included this homily. When I read that, I was like, I mean, one, okay, so a couple of things. The Hebrews 6 passage. For I think any student of the Bible, it's a troubling one because the implication of that text seems to be that if you've been saved and then you fall away, which I I would venture to say most Christians I know have gone through a period of falling away. Maybe not most, but a lot. I did for sure. It Then it says it's impossible to renew you to repentance. That seems to me, seems on like prima facie, like first glance, that seems to mean that a person who falls away cannot be redeemed, that they're basically screwed. They will never partake of the Holy Spirit again. They will not partake in the inheritance of Christ, heaven, you name it. And when it was first taught to me, it was taught, uh, I was in a Bible study with what was ultimately a cult. I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, and they ultimately used this passage basically to tell me that I was never uh, really a Christian, that I had never been saved because in my spiritual journey, I had been a Christian in my younger years, walked away from God and then was coming, had come back. And so they said, you couldn't have walked away because if you actually walked away, you would have no chance at salvation. So I was like, oh man, that's crazy. Um, so that passage was always very difficult for me. What I really think is interesting is over the years, uh, you know, as I have been a Bible teacher at a church, I've had to teach it many times. And, uh, you know, I've never felt super comfortable with how to exegete the passage. Um, but ultimately, where I landed in the last few years when teaching the passage was something not entirely unlike Chrysostom's uh, interpretation. Um, I basically came to the conclusion that what it's saying is, is that if you fall away, you don't have some kind of a renewal of your Christian vows, whether that be baptism or, you know, whatever you, you, 
you there in other words there's no start over you and the way i took it was you're a christian uh you don't get baptized again you don't go through like the sinner's prayer again you don't go through the the whole process of becoming a christian a second time um you're still a christian you might have backslid but you're a christian that's kind of the way i took it and i i took it as a text that was kind of responding to or arguing against the practice of the day that, of course, you're because it's the letter to the Hebrews. So, you know, so many Jewish people from it seems from the context of the text were going back into the temple offering sacrifices and thus repudiating the sacrifice of Christ. And so it seemed to me that Paul was based or not Paul, but whoever wrote the Hebrews was saying, you don't have a re-entry into Christ. And that's kind of what Christostom says, although he identifies that entry distinctly as baptism. Um but what I was fascinated by, and Chad, you you hit on it, is how much this text really seemed to, and I don't know the degree to which it influenced it, but really de- did seem to figure into the development of Christian theology, because it really does seem to convey this idea that you were only baptized once, and so if you go through a period of sin or backsliding or rejection of the Lord, you don't ultimately get re-baptized, but... There is within this implication that you have to do things to get back to being right. Like you already have the grace of God because you already have the forgiveness of sins in your baptism. But there are things that need to be done to kind of get yourself back to, I don't know, he doesn't clarify, but back to kind of a good standing. And that does yeah. seem like it could be a precursor for penance um, or, you know, something along those lines. So it really did seem, I, I put a note on one of the texts um, where I just wrote something like, this really seems to to prefigure where Catholic theology is ultimately um, going. And I do, yeah, I put here, I see the formulation here of work, uh, you know, of the atonement as seen in maybe even contemporary Catholicism. And so this is in section nine. I'll just read the text I put that on. This is on page 17. He says, now then, before you learned that it is possible to have our sins washed away by means of repentance, were you not in agony? So my understanding here is that he's basically saying, those of you who read Hebrew 6, who thought you couldn't have your sins washed away by means of repentance, because that's what the text says. But then he gave this dual meaning to repentance, like the initial repentance is baptism. But then subsequently, you can have like a secondary repentance. He says, were you not in agony? Because there is no second laver. How do you say that? Laver or laver? I would have said laver, but... Laver, okay. Because there's no second laver, and were ye not in despair of yourselves? But now that you've learned by what means repentance and remission is brought to a successful issue, and that we shall be able to entirely escape it, if we be willing to use it aright. What forgiveness can we possibly obtain if we do not even enter on the thought of our sins? So he basically seems to be setting up this two-tier part of salvation. Before you're baptized, you're a non-believer. You're baptized, you are now a Christian, but you will sin and you will fall into sin. Um, but when you do that, don't worry because there is little R repentance. I, he's not... He doesn't give like really good like distinction of what these two things are. Big R repentance is equated with your baptism. This little R repentance is like, you know, these the secondary steps that you can take. And it involves like almsgiving, like you said, as well as other things. But I find it a very fascinating take on this text. And it really does. It, it just makes me wonder 
if Hebrews 6 wasn't actually incredibly impactful in terms of the development of theology uh, for Catholics and Orthodox, uh, you know, kind of going into the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically, I had all the same thoughts. I don't really have much new to say. Um, but what it did remind me of, um, you know, other things I've read from sort of a Thomist, Thomas Aquinas, that is perspective um, about how sort of when you when you first convert um, to being a Christian and God gives you grace, and this would like sort of correspond to this capital R repentance. And I would imagine this is probably where this sort of strand of theology has its root is probably in Christostom is your, your first repentance is sort of a repentance of just your whole like former way of life, because before you, you sort of loved your sin and you didn't really care for God or maybe didn't even think of God. But then you have the ability now to love God and hate your sin. But then you will still sin now that you do love God and hate sin. And then after that, there's just the turning away that you continually do from those like individual sins. So it kind of reminded me of like a pattern of life repentance versus a like actual uh, individual token action repentance. I don't know. That was sort of how I thought of it being broken up, but I don't know if that's true to Christostom, but that's what it made me think of when I read it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's also helpful to remember, like for him, the Greek for repentance, metanoia, is like a, usually translated as something like a change of mind. Um, and so when you change mm. your mind, um, you know, you if, if you fall away, it's as if you rechanged your mind. Um, and so if conversion or well, if repentance is a change of mind when you convert to which and convert just means to turn um so you turn look towards god change your mind you know that's the beginning so falling away feels sort of like you've turned back around you've rechanged your mind about sin and it seems like you're kind of lost and what i th what i feel like chrysostom is trying to do is to get you to say yeah that can happen and like I like the you know the big R, little R. I liked how Tom was saying that. You know I think that's helpful. But it's sort of like okay, let's get you back, turn the right direction. Um, we know that you didn't totally lose everything, but maybe you know you sort of just got turned to the right, um, and you need to get you need to find your true north, as it were. Mm, okay. Um, but uh, it, I this can also be a plug for uh, I have Philip Carey coming on, and he wrote a book called uh, The Meaning of Protestant Theology. Um, and one of the things that he writes about in this book that that's really fascinating. So Tom was talking a little bit about the importance of baptism for Chris, Chris Ostham, And then he used the phrase when you say the prayer. And there's this interesting thing about evangelicalism that's sort of born in uh, Calvinist uh, reformed theology that the beginning of your Christian faith is when you sort of make this. Uh, profession of faith like that is actually the moment when you are a christian but for the orthodox catholic and uh and carrie will say even the lutherans 
you actually begin your Christian faith when you're baptized. Um, and that is just the beginning. Now, and Carrie will also make this point. It appears when you read the church fathers that they're not exactly convinced that uh, once you make that, uh, bat- once you're baptized, it, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you preserve, uh, preservation until the end. Um, and that's one of the things that Calvin was sort of trying to solve in his theology was what do we do with this sort of initial baptizing um, and then the life in between the baptizing and the end? Um, and how can we be certain um, that we have been saved? How can we be certain that what we what what baptism indicated that we are Christians will persist, will persevere up until the end? Um, and so, for for uh, Calvin and for those later in the kind of revivalist evangelical traditions, which have a sort of stream in Calvinism, uh, it was this choice that you make, and you actually kind of looked back to your choice. Um, and that is where you gr- ground your faith. But for the Orthodox and the, and the sort of historic churches like Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and to some degree Anglicanism as well, and maybe certain forms of Lutheranism, it's just the baptism. There isn't really a conversion in the same way that we think of it in the sort of evangelical traditions. So it's a really thought-provoking idea. So it, it actually still, I mean, in, in Chris Awesome's mind, just because you were baptized didn't necessarily mean you were going to persist until the in the last judgment that you would be uh, brought into the heavenly paradise. Um, those those are separate things. Your baptism is means you started the path, but it doesn't necessarily mean you will be there at the end. I, that's one of the things, Chad, what you just brought up, that makes discussion of being a Christian across the different denominations so difficult, I think. Um, because especially for, you know, late 20th century evangelicalism. I think probably less so now as evangelicalism has become more um, open, I guess, to uh, liturgical forms and to church tradition to a certain degree. But certainly 20th century evangelicalism, there was this really strong uh, rejection of the idea that one's salvation was tied up with their baptism. And there was a really strong embracing of uh, the, the the you know a various for, a very a certain form of the of doc, of Calvin's doctrine of the perseverance of the saints right and so I know the way that that manifests itself to me kind of you know growing up in the evangelical church is this idea that I don't know that I ever personally believed per se but I know that it was said this way all the time and was taught it to me this way. And I know when I, the first time I ever, quote, said the sinner's prayer, end quote, um, it had been taught to me in this way. This idea that say the sinner's prayer and you're locked in like nothing could take like could could ever result in you not being a Christian or in you being unsaved. Like you're going to heaven no matter what if you recite these words, basically. And then if anybody ever tried to interject the idea that baptism was to be connected or was essential or something like that. That was like, honestly, I remember a period of time where there were a lot of people just seemed to convey the idea that that was like the worst possible teaching. So that really does make a lot of, I say all of that just to point out that reading a lot of this stuff 
from the perspective of a 21st century evangelical can make it hard because we don't have the subtext or maybe subtext is the wrong word context we don't have the context in which a lot of these things are being said and in which in which christians understood salvation um so it does make it a little difficult you know uh, and not only that but even i think for people like us who have read a lot of this stuff and are maybe a little bit more aware of the evolution of theology it still gets tough because it's not always clear where in the transitions we are when we're reading somebody you know like like where where you know i mean it, this you know chrysostom is writing in the late fourth century Chad, you mentioned the fact that there certainly seemed to be a period of time where the, the, the accepted interpretation was once you're baptized, you're never allowed to sin again, right? And that seemed to be the prevailing thought not even 100 years before Chrysostom when um, Constantine, the emperor Constantine, postponed baptism to the end of his life because he didn't want to make a mistake afterward because there was a genuine fear that if he got baptized early and then committed some kind, you know, certain kinds of sins that could result in his damnation. So even here, we're in a transitional period, and it's not always really clear to me what the different theologians believe exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I just throw it out because uh, the it, it really um, it was one of those like things that helped me enter into the ancient world when I started thinking about like if I'm am aware of even my own anxieties, my own uh, worries as a Christian, and then I tried to say, okay, what was Augustine's worry and how did he solve it? Or what was Chrysostom's worry and how did he solve it? You know, and, and so I think they do solve it in very different ways. Um, I mean, I still think it's the same faith. Uh, now, Carrie will is going to lean on on Luther in his sort of solution in a way that I'm not sure is actually going to be ex acceptable uh, to most evangelicals because he pre he he sort of thinks Luther's solution to this problem, um, which is um, all your what basically his solution is that uh, and and he taking this from uh, uh, from Luther, uh, that you just have to believe the word, trust the word given to you at your baptism. So when when the pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, all, what, and, and your sins are forgiven in the absolution during the, the Lutheran liturgy, you're only like – you, you don't even get to ask the question, do I really believe this to be true? All you do is just say, God said it. And it's not a question of whether or not I always believed it, if I once believed it, or if I still believe it. It's just that, is that true? Is what God said true? That solves it. Um, and so, and that it's this kind of clever solution that in a sense, probably again, doesn't work if you're not in a higher liturgical church. Um, but, but it's, it's suggestive and what, what Carrie wants to do, what Carrie thinks that, it, that it'll help is it removes some of the burden from the individual, um, and their own believing that they believed when they believed and everything's about their belief and sort of the potential sort of. Uh, rising and falling of that belief, um, but is actually just resting on this is God's, this is what God says. God says you uh, have been forgiven and that means me and now I can be free. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. So, I, mean, I know the, the way that I've tended to, to, 
kind of sit with all. I've, it's always seemed odd to me that the sinner's prayer um, in modern or in 20th century evangelicalism seemed to take the place that was rightfully reserved for baptism. It did seem to me that baptism was the thing that that Christians historically look back to as their right of entrance into the church. And that seems right. That seems biblical, you know, I mean that, uh, but I also have, uh, you know, I'm a son of the reformation, <laughs> right? So I've always wanted to cling to this idea that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And so I've always kind of landed somewhere in there in that idea that, that baptism is, the right of initiation. It is the action that brings us in, not not spiritually, but at least physically into the church and that we look back to in faith, but that it's not the baptism itself, but it is the faith that moved us to baptism and the faith that still exists. That's kind of the way I've tended to look at it. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to have to run here pretty soon. So let's, we can move away from Carrie. Is there any, um, anything else that you wanted to bring out? I mean, there's, you know, as ever, uh, we kind of skipped around to a few different things, but, um, I thought those, it was sort of interesting just to see the emphasis on almsgiving, um, in, in his preaching. And even at a few points, he talks about the virtue of poverty. Um, so we really get a sense of what they were emphasizing in the ancient world. And I, I would just repeat from my, from my own reading of these texts, uh, from today too, like, you know, what would the world be like if Christian preachers said, uh, you know, your job as a, like you're one of the ways in which you, um, let's say, let's say from a maybe more Protestant perspective that you show your gratitude towards God is that you give to the poor and what it means to live a Christian life in gratitude to God is to give your money away. Um, and specifically give it to the poor, give it to, he mentions the widows and orphans, uh, and some other places. Like if that was the way that Christians were remembered in the 21st century and the late 20th century, uh, you know, I would be so happy, um, if there was the same legacy for, for our century as there was in the fourth century, like, you know, that Tom Holland, a secular historian can read, uh, read the history of the last 2000, 3000 years and say, Man, that was so weird that they did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Yep. Uh, agreed. Thank you for listening to a History of Christian Theology. Um, we will be back next week with more conversations on theologians from early Christianity. Uh, specifically, we'll look at uh, Samantha Miller's understanding of the preaching of John Chrysostom. Have a good week.